If you uh, open an app for your Bible, we're going to be in John chapter 1 eventually, by the time your app opens in this dead zone of uh, cell service that we have here. But um, the, we are talking last week, this week, and next week, uh, we're doing a new series on doctrine, and uh, this is kind of um, a passion of mine. Most of the time when you uh, read or see or people tell you how a church should work, they say you need to dumb everything down. Uh, so that common people understand because the Bible's really complicated and only people with training can understand it, um, which in history of the church always gets us in trouble. Uh, we did the Reformation in the early 1500s because this gets us in trouble, and uh, if you are into church history. But there is, uh, so that's three of us, <laughs> but there is a uh, I really, really believe that the Bible is accessible to everyone. Uh, the theologians have the same Holy Spirit, the same measure of God's direction as you do, and uh, they might have more education and know something about need about the archaeology or something like that that makes you go, ooh, but uh, to really understand the Scripture and follow God, instead of dumbing things down, I think we sh- should be giving people the tools to understand their faith and grow, especially in, this, uh, in the increasingly pluralistic culture in which we live, knowing what you believe and the, how it's distinct from the beliefs of other people actually is uh, key, I think, to loving other people. When people say, oh, we all worship the same God, uh, it's important to understand that that's not true. Uh, and uh, just because people use the same word for God uh, doesn't mean they believe the same things that we believe or that you believe the same things that they believe. And so we're doing this doctrine series, and we're uh, going to do it every now and then, uh, but we're doing three weeks on the Trinity, and then we're going to do three weeks on Christmas. Uh, then we're going to finish the Gospel of Matthew in the springtime. Next summer, we're going to preach on heaven, which I'm kind of excited about because I'm going there. It's like a travel brochure, but um, <laughs> there is... Uh, <laughs> Uh, so, the Trinity. The Trinity is uh, at the base level. Like, it is what we're founded on. It is how we're shaped. It is how we're created. It is how we believe. The Trinity is more, if you're into foundation, the Trinity is more foundational than even the Scripture uh, because the Trinity has existed in eternity past and will exist in eternity forward. And so that you understand the Trinity, well, let me back up. If you think you understand the Trinity, then you don't. Um, it is, uh, because here's the definition of the Trinity that we're uh, working with every week. Uh, can we go to the definition of the Trinity? There we go, because I don't have it memorized. Um, <laughs> God exists eternally as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and each is fully God, and there is one God. So God is three, and God is one. And if you're like in mathematics, and especially in Common Core, three is not the same as one. Um, So if you get into higher mathematics, you can deconstruct the number system and understand that it is all the same anyway. Um, But uh, three... God is three, and each of the three is all of God, and God is one. And the Bible actually uses the word one in a plural sense, uh, which makes absolutely no sense uh, if you're a math major that likes Cartesian logic and you want everything to work like that. The Bible, or if, I mean, if we approach this with a trying to understand it approach, then we miss the opportunity to worship a God that is beyond something that our brains can grasp. Uh, 
God being three and God being one is actually something we celebrate because it shows the power and the uh, otherness of God and his glory and his might and how much greater he is than we could maybe even comprehend. And so last week we talked about the Holy Spirit, uh, and you can, uh, if you weren't here last week, I encourage you to check it out online. This week we're going to talk about Jesus. So you know, I am uh, crazy about Jesus. I like Jesus a lot uh, of, of the Trinity. Jesus is my preferred member of the Trinity, which makes no sense theologically. Uh, I think most people like Jesus. They, even people that don't like the church like Jesus. If you watch uh, like any Will Ferrell movies about race cars, uh, you, they really like baby Jesus, right? Everybody loves, like how do you not love baby Jesus, right? Do you hate babies? That doesn't make any sense at all. Uh, Jesus is my buddy. He is my homeboy. And, uh, and, and it's just, I mean, I don't know a person on earth who, if you just talk to them about Jesus, doesn't like Jesus. Uh, what they get into trouble is when Jesus starts explaining who he is, or when doctrinally we start explaining or sharing what we believe about who Jesus is. And just for definition's sake, Jesus, uh, what we believe is that Jesus Christ was uh, fully God and was fully human at the same time in one person, and he will be eternally. And so Jesus is eternal, meaning always existed, always will exist. And the incarnation narrative, or what we would celebrate as Christmas, is this combining of 100 full percent all of God with all of what a human is into one. And there's been, in church history, lots of uh, try, to explain, try to explain how do you put together 100% and 100% end up with 100%. And people would, theologians would say, well, it was a different, like the 200% became something else. It's not human, it's not God, it's a third kind of nature. Or, or uh, Jesus gave up some of this and some of this, so it, it wasn't fully God and fully human. But we believe this, uh, that it was 100% God and 100% human existed in Jesus and continues to exist in this way today. Jesus' bodily death, burial, and resurrection, like his actual physical heart-stopping death, uh, <laughs> actually resurrected with a physical body. It was a glorified physical body, but when you go to heaven... Jesus is the human. That's how you can identify him. Uh, and you can, if you're looking at the Godhead, well, you probably can't, but it's rather bright according to the Bible. But the human uh, sitting to the right hand of God the Father uh, is Jesus. It is uh, who, uh, is, I mean, Jesus is um, actually physically human. And he is actually physically God as well. Putting those two things together is what we're going to talk about. And then we're going to read the beginning of the Gospel of John, which is one of <laughs> If you weren't here last week, you just turned around to the soundboard and went, what is wrong with those guys? They are always on the internet. Uh, each week... 
Uh, this is something we're celebrating. This was awesome. Last week I forgot we were doing this, and it scared me. I was like, you sound booth guys don't even know what you're doing back there. Um, and it ends up I told them to do this. Each week we're going to do a heresy of the week. And I write it and put it up, and then the person running the PowerPoint gets to decide when we're going to talk about the heresy of the week. And so we're talking about the heresy of the week right now. Um, this week it is Arianism. Arianism is not about the whiteness of the Trinity. Um, it is... Uh, <laughs> Arianism was actually uh, made up by this guy, Arius, who was a, a teacher, a theologian in Alexandria uh, around the 300s. He taught this stuff, and uh, he was actually refuted. Uh, but he taught that the Son, and then by uh, implication, the Spirit, uh, God the Spirit, which we talked about last week, was created by God the Father at some point, before creation. Before, so in originally, you can go back far enough, there would be God... Uh, and then at some point before the physical world was created, God created Jesus and God created the Holy Spirit and they were present at creation. Uh, this teaching falls apart and it was actually, uh, so, sorry, the problem is that the God the Son is greater than creation but not greater than God the Father because God the Father would be more eternal and we'd go back in eternity, uh, and God the Son would not. He would have a created moment. And they would use like John 3.16, where it says uh, God uh, for his only Son was begotten. Uh, and that is, they would say that word means made. Uh, and then we had councils, church councils in 325, and the Nicene Creed was, it is God is, uh, Jesus is begotten, not made, is something that churches would say, especially liturgical churches that quote the Nicene Creed. And then the Council of Constantinople in AD 31. There was a focus on the eternal past nature of the entire Trinity. So, You'll talk with people that are parts of like major uh, religions in our country uh, that believe that Jesus and God the Father are not equal, that at some point God the Father created Jesus. That is Arianism. And uh, they can try to explain that God the Father is greater than Jesus, and you'll say, nope, that's Arianism. And they'll be like, I have lots of black friends. And you have to... <laughs> Then you'll have to teach them that they have uh, broken one of the heresies of the week. So, <laughs> um, Arianism is the heresy of the week. You can Google that later and know that Jesus was not made by God and is not subordinate to God. And uh, we'll move forward. All right. <laughs> uh, I didn't make. I thought this was a great idea, and I never know where I was. Uh, so, Jesus Christ was fully God and fully human in one person, and He will be eternally. And we're going to talk through some scriptures. They're going to be on the screen. And uh, we'll go through them kind of fast so that you can catch these things. But there's a bunch of scriptures that actually teach about Jesus being human and then a bunch of scriptures about Jesus being divine. Uh, to begin with, Jesus is human. And this is Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, uh, which is a prophecy. But then we see this is true, especially at Christmas time. Isaiah 9 talks is a Christmas uh, chapter. It says this, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And so we see Mighty God being born of a human. And so Jesus was actually conceived uh, as a human within Mary, uh, his mother, and then born, which holds in tremendous implications. If, if we 
the virgin, like there's some things we hold with open hands, some things we hold with closed hand, and virgin birth has to be one of those closed hand issues because without the full combination, uh, without the full divinity and full humanity that the virgin birth gives, uh, we st- stop understanding that salvation is an actual movement of God. If, uh, if it's just uh, human, if Jesus is just human, um, then salvation is something uh, that God adopted, that humans made. And so this full union is found in the virgin birth, which ends up Jesus is born without inherited sin uh, because he doesn't have a father and somehow the Holy Spirit blocks the transmission of sin because we believe that sin is passed on generationally, that we're born uh, guilty of the transgressions of our fathers and mothers. So uh, Jesus' virgin birth gives him humanity. Then John nineteen twenty eight. Jesus is thirsty, uh, which seems really silly, but if you've ever been thirsty, you know what it is to be alive. And uh, Jesus, this is when Jesus is on the cross. After this, Jesus, knowing that now was, all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. And they got him a drink. Jesus was also hungry sometimes. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, you're dang right he was hungry. All right? If you've ever done that, you've been hungry, all right? And so Jesus, in order to understand that he's fully human, we can look. He was hungry. God doesn't, if he's just God and not human, uh, then if he's just God, as if I said that, if he's only God uh, and not human, then hunger wouldn't be something that God has because God doesn't have needs, all right? Jesus got tired, just like you. Uh, Jacob, Jesus went for a walk Uh, Jacob's well was there. He got to a village in Samaria. This is John chapter 4. And so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, because they walked everywhere, was sitting beside the well. And it was about the sixth hour, which the sixth hour depends on whether you believe that he was using a Roman clock or a Jewish clock. Might be around noon. It might be around three in the afternoon. But Jesus was walking all day and got there. And he had enough. And he sat down. He was tired. If you've ever been like, I've had enough. I'm tired, right? then you're understanding Jesus. Uh, He learned things. Jesus went to school. Jesus, like the guy who made everything, went to school. And I like to think that he struggled with geography, right? But, um, (laughs) and maybe math too, when they were like, what is three? And he went, three equals one. And they went, no. Um, And he went, yes, it is, right? And the parent-teacher interviews were like, Jesus has a bit of an attitude, and uh, (laughs) Jesus learned obedience. Uh, Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. This is in Hebrews, which is a fantastic Christological book. And being made perfect, uh, Jesus, and you want to understand that word perfect is like complete, not that he never, like, he never made mistakes on his geography test, but being uh, made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. And so Jesus learned, learned to obey uh, his parents, to obey his teachers and the, the elders in his community. Um, next one is John chapter 12. Jesus says this, now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, like free me from this burden. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour the word troubled, if you, you can go to like a websites that teach you the Greek words and stuff like that, we, would, we, we don't normally say my soul is troubled. We would say like I'm anxious. And Jesus actually experienced the pressure of anxiety. This is before he was going to the cross and, and he felt like 
what shall I say? Father, save me from, if you've ever experienced that kind of, oh, I wish God would just save me from this season of my life or this trial that I have to go through or this thing or this conversation that I have to have. Jesus experienced that exact same anxiety, which is, I think, distinctly human. Um, And then lastly, this is important because in his humanity, Jesus was sinless. And so the word is sinlessness. And you'll say that's not a word, and it is. It's right there. Um, Hebrews (laughs) 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. This is a remarkable, remarkable verse because the temptation of Jesus um, is uh, insanely important to our theology and our doctrine uh, because the conversation is, can like we're tempted, the Bible teaches, when we are dragged away by our own evil desires. And temptation only works because we have a propensity towards sin. And so for Jesus to be tempted, he had to hold some of the same weaknesses that we have. And there's no way to doctrinally put this together. This is another one of those mysteries of the combination of Jesus' humanity and divinity. But we know that the Bible teaches that the temptations were real, that Jesus was actually tempted and yet was without sin through his whole life. Now, some would say that means he never made a mistake on his math test. I would say that it's not a sin to be bad at math, right? And, and I bet a bunch of you would agree with me. Um, but, but it is, uh, those are weaknesses that we experience and Jesus would have had weaknesses that we experience. As Jesus got older, he would have still gone to Thanksgiving football and he would have suffered in his back and neck for the next three or four days um, because Jesus may have been a little out of shape. So... Um, he went for a walk and got tired and had to sit down by the well, all right? So if you've ever, this is an aside, but if you read books, you need to read Phil Yancey's The Jesus I Never Knew because he goes through and each chapter is about a different movie made about Jesus. And there's an old VHS Sunday school curriculum and there's one movie that they made where Jesus looks like Jack Black, all right? Like, uh, and he... I'm not kidding. It is, I can't find the movie movie, but the clip is fantastic because Jesus is a bit of a chubby fellow and people freaked out because my Jesus has a six pack, right? Like, and my Jesus can crank off 50 push-ups and then walk on water, right? But the reality is Jesus didn't belong to a gym, all right? And he hung out with people that drank a lot, all right? And so... When you get to heaven and Jesus is bald on top and a little bit of a round fellow and you're like, I'm looking for Jesus. I um, have you seen him? And, and he, you're, it is going to be a good day, all right? Because uh, there will be lots of us that experience grace for the first time. Like, Jesus isn't be, like pretty? Oh, that's fantastic. Uh, um, so Jesus is human. So, so you know, Jesus being out of shape is not doctrine. It's just a dream that I have. But, uh, but Jesus is fully 100% human. At the same time, Jesus is fully 100% divine. Jesus is fully God. And so we'll, I want to talk about that. In John chapter 8, uh, his omnipotence, I say omnipotence all the time, but that's the wrong way to say it, um, meaning he's powerful. Uh, overall. He arose 
uh, and rebuke the winds and the sea. Jesus would, or Matthew chapter 8, where Jesus calms the storm when he's in the boat. And the men, his disciples, marveled, saying, what sort of man is this that even the wind and seas obey him? So Jesus demonstrated his power over creation. Um, his eternality, which again is a made-up word by theologians, but Jesus taught in uh, John chapter 8 when he's teaching uh, Jewish people, before Abraham was, I am. And that name, I am, is the name that God introduces himself with. And so when Jesus says, before Abraham, who would have been dead thousands of years ago, I am. Not I was, but I am. And Jesus is claiming eternal divinity in that statement, which is why they killed him, because he was a heretic. Um, next is sovereignty. This is a fantastic passage in Mark chapter 2, if you want to understand Jesus' humanity and divinity. Uh, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. And now some of the scribes were sitting there. These would be like the legalists of the law, the people, the theologians, the ones who understood what the Bible taught the best. Uh, they were sitting there questioning in their hearts without saying anything. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So Jesus forgives sins. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. Something reserved that only God can do. And so Jesus is either a heretic of the weak or he is uh, fully divine. And then the next verses talk about Jesus' omniscience because those guys are thinking, who can do this except for God? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questions within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? And then Jesus says this, which is easier, to say the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up and take up your bed, which would be a roll-up mat, and walk? But that you know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And the paralytic does just that. Rose immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so they were all amazed and glorifying God, saying, we never saw anything like this. So Jesus shows if what's harder, telling someone who's paralyzed to stand up and walk or saying, I forgive your sins. And since I want you to believe that I forgave his sins, watch this, get up and walk. And the way he does that is by knowing, omniscience is the knowing all things, uh, he knows what they were thinking uh, when they opposed him. John chapter 10 teaches that Jesus is immortal. Uh, for this reason, and this, this is a... Uh, I like Jesus a lot, and so I keep saying these verses are awesome, but uh, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Jesus is referring to his impending death. He says this, no one takes it from me. No one killed Jesus, but I lay it down on my own accord. Jesus decided to let them crucify him. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus actually says to the people, I do not, like Jesus is immortal, meaning he does, like his death, he beats death. He is more powerful than death. The, the one thing that all of us will eventually meet, Jesus is more powerful than that one thing. And he actually teaches the people that he dies and he rises again because he decides to die and rise again because he has that kind of authority. Uh, Jesus, that's, it's Kind of a boss thing that Jesus does. Uh, his worthiness. Jesus is worthy of worship. 
only divine beings, Jesus, Holy Spirit, God, are worthy of worship in the Bible. Anytime someone sees an angel, they often fall face down in front of the angel, and the angel goes, you need to get up now. Like, I'm not worthy of worship. God is. Uh, but it says this, therefore, in Philippians, which is a letter written by the Apostle Paul, uh, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. At a point in history, every single person will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Um, no matter their belief structure when they lived on earth, uh, this is Jesus being presented as um, not only worthy of worship, but I think demanding of worship. Not that he demands it of us, but who he is just demands uh, that he be worshipped. Um, all of that is um, just like a skim through of the way, th this is why we use the word doctrine, because doctrine isn't theology. Doctrine is, here's what the Bible teaches. Theology is the explanation of it. But if you just read what the Bible teaches, the Bible teaches that Jesus was fully human and experienced everything that you experience being human, and he was fully God. And his full experience of humanity was being God. Now this passage in the beginning of the Gospel of John, John uh, the Gospel of John is written by a guy named John uh, who was Jesus' very best friend while he was on earth. Uh, and so the insights given are, are quite remarkable, I think, because of the love relationship that they shared. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are all called the Gospels. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke are kind of similar and they kind of tell the same stories, and then John kind of does his own thing. And his book is uh, quite apocalyptic and things. It holds like seven miracles and seven sections of teachings, and does, it's very put together in that kind of way. This is the same John that wrote Revelation, and so this is the way that he thought or the way that he was led to uh, understand God. But I want to read through this, and then I actually want to talk through it if we can. The Gospel of John begins with these 18 verses, which are an explanation. A lot of people like to think of John as uh, a court case, and there's these seven bits of evidence and seven testimonies that are given, and this is kind of like the opening statement, if you're uh, familiar with court cases or if you watch Law and Order a lot. But, uh, so I'm going to read all the way through it because it's an incredible picture of Scripture, and then we'll talk through it a little bit and talk about the implications in, in, uh, or really in verse 16. But in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him not anything made that was made <laughs> was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This is who we call John the Baptist. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all, may, might, sorry, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness to the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. 
And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John, this is in brackets, bore witness about Him and cried out, This is of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because He was before me. And from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. It's this beautiful picture of Jesus from the beginning of time up to the Incarnation and Jesus' understanding or our understanding of who God is through Jesus. So let's, I want to talk through this bit by bit if you'll let us. It begins by saying this, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And we would understand that the word Word as being like uh, the message, all right? So in the beginning was the message, and the message was with God, and the message was God. And the message, as we learn later on, like in verse 14, the, the, sorry, in verse 18, that the message was God. So Jesus was God, and Jesus was with God. It's a Trinitarian verse. But it also draws us back to Genesis 1-1, the very first verse in the Bible, right? In the beginning, God created. And then it says, in the beginning, in verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. And the, if you understand this in Genesis, it's not talking about the beginning of creation. It's actually better if you take out the word the, if you're reading the language the way it was first written. It says, in beginning, as all one word, in beginning. This means like before that. And so if you think back as far as you can, a little bit before that, and then a little bit before that, and a little bit before that. So in like antiquity, in before there was in, Jesus was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and he was in beginning with God. And then all things... Everything that was made was made through Jesus. You want an argument against Arianism? This verse. Because if everything is made through Jesus, then you can't make Jesus because Jesus has to exist in order to make Jesus. If you're arguing with someone who uh, believes that Jesus isn't equal to God, and this is very common in like Mormonism, you can just show them this verse. The problem is they mistranslate, or Jehovah Witnesses mistranslate it so well. They say, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. If you have ever have a Jehovah Witness friend that has a Bible, they tr- translate this completely different, and it's terrible. Uh, it's not faithful to the text at all. Uh, but all things are made through Jesus. And without Jesus was not anything made that was made. And so you can't make things without Jesus. And in Jesus was life, and that life was the light of men. Do you see the Genesis narrative there again? God is making life, and God is making light. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it or has not overcome uh, who Jesus is. Then it has this quick kind of in paragraphs thing about John the Baptist. John the Baptist was sent from God. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all can believe through him. You can kind of see the court case stuff going on there, right? John the Baptist wasn't the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. And the true light, this is Jesus, 
who gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Some Bibles say uh, the true light which enlightened everyone. Doesn't just give light to the Christians or to the good people, but to everyone. Everyone experiences the goodness of God or the lightness, enlightenment of God. No one can escape or live apart from the reality of Jesus and his incarnation. So when, when Jesus was in the world, the world that was made through him, yet the world did not recognize him as God. And he goes to his own people, the people of God, or the Jewish people, and his own people who were chosen by God to be the people of God, to be how God would demonstrate his love to the world, are not able to receive Jesus, are not able to hold on to Jesus. And then there's this major transition. Because of that, all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to be children of God, born not from flesh or not born from the will of man, but born of God. And so the people of God transitions from people who are born, who have their earthly descendant is Jewish in their nationality, to the people of God transitions to those who receive Jesus, who are born into this, called children of God, not because they're physically born, but because they're spiritually. Jesus used the word born again when he explained this to people. And so your um, family tree becomes not a physical family tree, but really a spiritual family tree because you're adopted into the family of God. Verse 14, that Jesus lived among the people, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The original language says that Jesus like put his tent up in our neighborhood, uh, which is fantastic. It, Jesus uh, encourages camping. Uh, but the, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, put his tent up. Uh, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then there's another little bracket about John the Baptist where he refers to his eternal nature, where he says, uh, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Even though Jesus was born physically after, his eternality into the past is witnessed to by John. For from his fullness we have all received Grace upon grace, from his fullness. I want to talk about this more, but we'll go through verse 17 and 18. The law was given through Moses. This is the Old Testament and the structure of the Jewish people. And yet grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. It's not saying the law was bad and Jesus is good. It's actually saying the law was pointing towards this. And Jesus is the fulfillment of this. Because no one has seen God. You don't see God by following rules. You see God... Uh, because Jesus has made him known. Through your relationship with Jesus, you know God. Following rules will never help you to understand God because Jesus is full of not just truth, but grace as well. In fact, in verse 16, it says, for from his fullness, the fullness being the full divinity and the full humanity of Christ, because of that union, we have all received grace upon grace. Meaning everyone receives grace from Jesus. Even if they believe a heresy of the weak, even if they have no religion at all, even if they have no knowledge of Jesus or if they have full knowledge and full rejection of Jesus, they receive grace upon grace. 
There's a couple like different ways to understand grace. There's something called saving grace. Saving grace is the grace that is extended to us that allows us to respond to Jesus in a saving way and, and he, where he forgives us of our sin, where we acknowledge him as Lord and Savior and repent and turn away from our sin and follow Jesus. That's saving grace because it isn't us getting saved, it's God saving us. Does that make sense? Uh, you want, that's why we say I was saved, not I did my salvation or I got saved or like we were saved from someone outside of ourselves. Salvation is a gift that God gives, not earned on our own. That's why it's called grace because it's not something that we deserve or what we've are on our own merit. It's unmerited favor. But then beyond that, even for those who never respond to the saving grace of God, there's something called common grace. And common grace is the grace that's extended to all humanity because Jesus is fully God and fully human. The reason that we hold this doctrine so dear is because the good things that all humanity experiences, like life and breath, comes from the fullness of Jesus. We worship Jesus and we thank him for his full divinity and full humanity because of the common grace that we experience. Common grace is things like order in our world, right? Like just the fact that people generally have a conscience towards each other is common grace. When people who don't believe anything about God, but they do very godly things, they feed the poor or clothe the naked or give homes to the homeless, that's, that's common grace. That's God working in and through people through just common grace. When uh, the fact that many of you are in law enforcement or your families that are, the fact that the police are the smart ones and the criminals aren't is common grace. <laughs> All right? We are thankful for that. Uh, we are, it's just the way that the, the grace of God operates to allow uh, the peace of God to reign in our world happens because of the fullness of God. So if you're in law enforcement, <laughs> you are thankful for the full divinity and full humanity of Jesus, even if you don't believe in God. That full humanity and full divinity of Jesus extends grace upon grace to us in the way that brings common grace to all the world that brings order and peace to our lives. And there's often those who work against that common grace, those who operate in violence and war and oppression and abuse. And common grace is where Jesus intercepts that and pushes back against it. Whether it's through a Christian or not through a Christian, whether, I mean, you can have an atheist doctor who is really good. <laughs> you can drink coffee made by an agnostic person. And you're like, this is good coffee. That's common grace. <laughs> and you're thankful that Jesus gave gifts to someone in order that your coffee tastes good. The good things that happen, this grace upon grace, the undeserved goodness of life, to all people is due to the fullness of Jesus Christ 
in his full humanity and full divinity. So basically at Thanksgiving, if you had that emotional person at your Thanksgiving that wanted everyone to go around and say what they were thankful about, and you were like, oh, we don't have to hold hands, do we? <laughs> Little baggage here, but the, uh, <laughs> it doesn't matter if your Thanksgiving was centered on Christ or not. The things that people were thankful for were grace from God. Because doctrinally, as human beings, we live in sin, and sin is the opposition or the destruction of the peace that God brings. And sin is setting ourselves up as God. And even when we operate in sin or human beings have no acknowledgement of Christ or his word or his guidance or his salvation, their experience of grace is due to the full humanity and full divinity of Jesus. And so all of a sudden, this isn't just some doctrine that's out there that, oh yeah, James taught us this thing so we can win arguments when we are arguing against people that are Arians. Uh, no, not that kind of, <laughs> right? But it really is when you see good happen, when people are driving down the road and they stay on their side, when your kids get to go to school and enjoy it, when you live in a country that offers you freedom of worship, when somebody holds the door for you going into a store, you're experiencing the result of the incarnation of the full humanity and full deity in Jesus Christ, in the person of Jesus Christ. You're experiencing the Trinity existing among us, this goodness and this grace in our life. Not just that we have favor from God, but now also because we've experienced saving grace, we have a knowledge of God because of who Jesus is, because no one has ever seen God. And I can't explain God to you because he is beyond explanation. But Jesus is the word, the message, the image, the picture the demonstration of God. The Bible uses the word that Jesus is the author of our faith, meaning he made it, and the perfecter of our faith, meaning he did it. And so when we look at Jesus and when we worship Jesus, it is the fullness of God that we worship, and it is the fullness of God that we experience. When you feel Jesus with you or experience Jesus in your life, you're experiencing the full measure of the grace of God on your life, which causes us not to go, oh, we're smarter, but to go, oh, this is why I worship God. This is why I turn my heart towards him, because he is, and he always was, and he always will be, the giver of grace to not just me, but to all humanity. Let's pray together, all right? God, in this, and in this understanding and in this moment, uh, we want to worship you. Because you are beyond our understanding, if we had a God that we could explain, then that wouldn't be a God worth following at all. 
If we had a God who just was human and did not have access to the divine as Jesus did, then our worship is in vain. And if we have a God who was divine but just appeared to be human, then you never experience the weakness of being human, then you never walked through temptation, then you're no longer our high priest who has experienced everything that we have experienced and can mediate between us and God the Father. But because of both, Jesus, we are here with worship on our hearts and thankfulness in our minds because of who you are. Because really this, and here's why I love this, Jesus, because really this isn't about us. This is about you. And so Jesus, turn our hearts away from ourselves and turn our hearts towards you, even now, as we worship, by your grace upon grace. Amen.